Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fully Booked, the Hidden Gems author podcast, which Craig Touch and myself, Roland Hume, chat some of the interesting figures and leading lights in this crazy industry we're in of writing and self-publishing. And today we are delighted to have a very special guest, Mel Madison, who is a financial thriller author and a veteran of the finance industry himself, which adds real colour to what he writes, here to talk to us about the structure of his stories. And I'm really, really excited to speak to you, Mel, because uh, that's something that, that is one of of my passion. So Mel, thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent and thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we are delighted to have you. And of course, we wouldn't be here without the man himself, Craig Touch, the owner and founder of Hidden Gems and an author himself. How are you doing today, Craig? Doing well. Thank you, Roland. And uh, thanks for coming on, Mel. Um, I know that, you know, you, you write in the the financial uh, sort of world, financial thriller world. You have a new book coming out as well. Um, and what we wanted to talk to you today about is the structure, as, as Roland said. Um, you write in sort of a three-act structure, right? Um, and that's, you know, maybe a little different than what some other people use. And so we thought it would be uh, an interesting thing to talk about. And so we can go over that structure and, and how you put it all together and what it means and all that. So why don't you start off with um, sort of giving us an idea of your background and, and your writing and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, thanks, guys. So writing and reading, of course, you know, those two often go together, have been passions of mine since I was a child. I just was one of those kids that couldn't get enough books. Um, and when I was getting a little older and going to college, um, I dabbled in it, but I did not immerse myself in it, as some people are, are prone to do. Um, so I, I studied philosophy at Loyola University of Chicago, but I took every creating writing course that they could have. And initially, actually, I was drawn to poetry. I was drawn to kind of the magic of words and the, the, the actual sound of them when read and trying to encapsulate you know, deep emotions or the human condition into just a few lines, which is not easy to do. Um, but it was something that I did, you know, more for myself than thinking really of it as a career path. And, and later in life, I found myself into a very opposite realm. I found myself in the world of high finance. I have worked for companies all over the world, Amsterdam, Tel Aviv, um, San Francisco, Seattle, Boston, different places, um, in the financial sector. At one point, I went back to school. I received an MBA from Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and during the course of, of all of this, the writing never left me. And I, I've always been a huge fan every day, every night. If I'm on a run, if I'm trying to fall asleep at night, I'm listening to a book. And and so at a certain point, I finally said, you know, Mel, if you really want to write and this is not going away, you need, you need to prioritize it and do it, at least for me. I know some people can do a lot of things at different times. But but for me, I, I decided that I was going to you know, sacrifice, take a break from work, um, a sabbatical, if you will, and just immerse myself into writing. And that 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 process started in, uh, you know, the spring and summer of uh, 2022. Um, and, you know, I went through the process and we can get more into that, but I'll kind of, kind of pause there and ask you guys where, where you'd like me to take it from there or give you a little more background on that right before we get into, you know, structure. 
Well, I guess, you know, the idea of, you know, starting off as poetry, that's very structured, usually, uh, you know, that sort of medium. Um, so it makes sense that, you know, when you move to, to writing, you're, you're very focused on your structure as well. Um, so when you uh, took your break and you wrote a book then, and then how did that, how did that turn out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, what I was drawn to, you know, when I was younger was a little different than what I was drawn to as I got older. So when, when I was younger, I was drawn to more of the, the heady authors, you know, Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, people that really grappled with the big ideas. And, you know, I think there's a, there's a huge place for that. And those are extremely valuable books. But I also think there's a place for fiction that is fun that people enjoy that gives them, you know, an escape where instead of watching a movie there, the, the characters are coming alive in their minds and they're enjoying that. And, and so I, I wanted to do, you know, commercial fiction. I wasn't writing to win a Nobel prize in literature. Um, I was writing cause I wanted to tell a story. I also put a lot of what I've learned about finance, including some of the shadowy things into it that I thought would not only be interesting to readers, but would be um, a little educational. But the number one goal was a good book, a good story. And all the finance stuff or exposing shadowy, you know, central bank activities, that, that was secondary to first writing a good story. So I went to people that, you know, do this for a living, people that are uh, great authors, people that uh, teach people how, how to write. I didn't go to an MFA program, but I, I read books. I read, you know, James Frey's book, How to Write a Damn Good Thriller. I read uh, James Scott Bell, How to Write Best-Selling Fiction. And I, I looked at different people, different styles, and then I was able to find something that worked for me. And I think I mentioned those two people in particular because what eventually worked for me was a combination of some of the aspects of structure that both of those individuals talk about. So in How to Write a Damn Good Thriller, Frey talks about, uh, you know, a five movement structure. And then in How to Write Bestselling Fiction, um, James Scott Bell talks about a three-act structure but with these different signposts that he calls them put in between. So 14 different signposts that, you know, as a writer, if you don't want to overly program it out, and I'm not good at overly programming every chapter out before I start to write, I was able to mix a little bit of, you know, what they call, you know, kind of pantsing it and, and also like plotting and planning everything and taking an amalgamation of different uh, writing experts and putting that together into a style that worked for me. I find that fascinating. I, I think intrinsically as human beings, we understand the structure of stories without necessarily being able to to describe it. And I think some of the most important stories of our time follow what, uh, you know, a particular structure like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. It's like that's Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. But to a lot of us, especially when we start out in writing, I mean, I wrote a few books and I'm like, this is a bloody good book. And it wasn't until later when I started studying the the craft of storytelling and the monomyth and this thing. I was like, oh, I wrote that book and it's good because it followed the structure of the story. And you realize that 
the structure of a story and the circular nature of it is what makes a book good. And you can have a book that might not be particularly well written, but if it has a really solid uh, story structure, it can still be very successful and entertaining. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think, you know, James Bell, he uses the term, you know, you can, you can use a recipe and still be original, you know, um, you know, if somebody's making cordon bleu, there's a basic recipe to it, but you can have a million different versions and levels of good or bad of cordon bleu. And I, I, I saw myself as, you know, looking at this, not as, oh, I want to be so formulaic that, so, for example, I didn't follow the 14 signposts exactly. Um, you know, I, there was one or two that I think didn't get in there. There was a couple that went in different orders. But I, I do think, and this I believe, you know, my philosophy background goes all the way back to Aristotle and, you know, the, a beginning, a middle and an end. And, and great writers that are out there, they're able, there are some that are able to to do, you know, very wide variations on this. And there are people that are out there that are doing experimental fiction and they want to experiment, you know, with words and structure and all of that. And, and all of that is great and, and um, has, like I said, a very valuable place in, in the world of literature. But I also, you know, don't poo poo or look down on, you know, an enjoyable read. And, and I thought that, you know, sometimes you're following a structure that the reader, as you mentioned, he innately or she innately understands that structure and kind of craves it without even knowing that they are craving it. And when you provide that to them and you do it in an interesting, original, creative way with your own voice and you provide good characters, I, I'm not someone who thinks about, well, I want this to be really plot driven because it's a thriller. You know, I want it to have a strong plot line and and really follow in a direction, but I also want to give the characters nuance and present characters that maybe could be just side characters that I make caricatures actual have, you know, details that come to life. Yeah. You know, we don't hear as much about the the three act structure and the signposts Mm -hmm. as we do some of the other ones like the hero's journey or, you know, save Mm -hmm. the cat or the, Mm -hmm. the the story circle, Harmon's story circle, all those Mm -hmm. other sort of narrative structures. We don't hear, um, I guess we hear about those ones, or I hear about those ones a lot more mm-hmm. than sort of this this one. So, uh, did you look at some of those other structures, um, and then just decide that this mm-hmm. three act one is more for you, or? Mm-hmm. You- yeah, yes, I, I I looked I looked at them, and um, like I said, the the five movement structure. I mean, maybe it's helpful for just to talk about the five movement and the three act a little bit, um, just so people understand what I'm talking about. So the five act structure was movement one a gripping opening movement two and this was writ this is for a thriller this is from james frey best-selling thriller movement two the evil plot gets underway and the hero in terrible trouble fights a defensive battle movement three the turning point often a kind of symbolic death the hero goes on the offensive movement four the hero confronts the villain um, who almost wins but is finally defeated in a slam bang climax and movement five resolution tells what happens to the major character as a result of the victory. So those are the five really quick, a, a big opening, the evil plot gets underway, a turning point, a metamorphosis, a bit of the hero's journey. And then the hero confronts the villain who almost wins and then kind of a resolution. So the reader gets some of that satisfaction and closure of 
you know, what happened to this guy that you mentioned in the middle of the book who seemed important then. But, you know, I'm kind of wondering what was the result of that corrupt politician or something like that, that different characters that were in my book. And then the three act structure and, and what Bell talks about is really, you know, it, it takes those five movements and kind of just condenses it a bit, you know, act one. And he talks about it. Uh, he, he gives a time range. It's not a hard, fast rule, but he talks about the first 20 percent or so of the novel being the first act. And that's really where you're setting things up for the rest of the novel. And within um, act one, you have five signposts. So you have the disturbance. And that's, you know, the the main character, the protagonist is kind of in his ordinary world and something happens to upset that. So in my book, my main character, Rory O'Connor, he is an ex-financial genius who helped create this AI supercomputer uh, that is now controlling all of the world's stock markets. It's manipulating them. So instead of going way up and way down and moving, you know, they're going very steady. And and he he had the backstory that you don't know in the beginning. You know, he's he's lost his best friend and he's kind of down and out and he's given up on the being this big hot shot in finance. And he's living in a luxury condo on the beach in San Juan, Puerto Rico, trade in San Juan, Puerto Rico, trading cryptocurrencies. And, you know, he gets a call, you know, and and he had been a lead designer along with his dead best friend of this supercomputer Icarus. And he gets a call from a former colleague like Icarus is showing signs that aren't working. And it's very early on that the readers clued in like this amazing new world of quantum AI, you know, taking away boom and bust and protecting people's 401ks is, is, is at risk. And, you know, Rory is going to be reluctantly pulled into the back into this world. Um, the second signpost in Act One is, uh, according to Bell, is the care package, and that's something where you know the 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 hero does something uh, nice to to get the even though Roy's not the most sympathetic main character, he uh, you know he has redeeming qualities, and you show that to kind of give the the reader some empathy and to make them human, right? So you know in the first chapter, second chapter. Uh, Rory had lost his cell phone after a night of partying, you know, on Halloween. And, um, you know, a, a neighborhood kid in Puerto Rico brings it back to him. And, you know, he's he's very grateful about it and offers him, you know, a nice reward and gives him, a, you know, and you can tell that, you know, even though Rory who's about, you know, in his 40s and he's a big finance guy and he's he's been successful and he's a millionaire and he lives in a fancy beachfront condo. You know, the neighborhood kid is someone he relates to and, and, and helps out because um, because the cell phone comes back and then, you know, trouble brewing and the argument against transformation are the next two uh, steps. So get, give the reader a little bit more information about what this disturbance that hinted at trouble brewing, uh, what kind of trouble really is brewing. And then the the main character kind of fights against this and it's a little bit of an argument against transformation um, before they pass through this first doorway of no return that then leads into the second act. So I can kind of pause there and see anything. Um, but that's that's the first act. And then there's a kind of a similar layout that if you'd like, I could go into on acts two and three. Yeah, I mean, let's take a pause there because I find this fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, just from the fact that you know there are all of these different story structures, 
Um, but they all seem to have certain parallels. And I mean, Joseph Campbell's, I think, had 14 steps. My favorite is Dan Harmon's, which has uh, eight. And then you talk about the five act structure and the three act structure. And it's interesting how some of the, the sort of instigating uh, events seem to be the same throughout it. And yet they have these subtle nuances. Um, would you say that the five act structure is the one you first mentioned? Three act structure mm. is structure that I remember most often from TV shows, like especially mm. in the seventies where you'd have the, the cheesy TV shows like the saint and stuff. And they'd often have like act one, act two, act three. What do you, what is it that particularly drew you to, to the story structure that, that mm. um, you're writing here and, and why does it work better for you than other ones mm. that are out there? Mm. So when I first started planning it, I actually did it along the five act of, yeah. of prey and and I found that within those five acts, there was still a little bit lack of cohesion. And I almost went back and then retrofitted the 14 signposts from Bell's three act into my five act, you know, main uh, outline. So it, it really was a mix. And that's why I, I, I mentioned both of them and talked a little bit about both of them, because I think that for me, you know, as as I started getting into more of the detail of what was happening, I needed to have some general idea of like that fifth movement in Frey that could help me go back and, and, and add those details of the 14 different signposts, which Bell might have gotten some of that from Campbell. Uh, he mentions Campbell in, in the book um, as someone who, who has helped him, you know, develop his signposts. So that's that's really the way that it came about for me. And, you know, I, I planned it out in different ways. I planned it out in on notebooks and with writing with pen and paper. I also, you know, pulled from my finance and, and put stuff into Excel and, you know, literally was looking at where where this is going to go and um, noting, you know, where the signposts were and so on and so forth. And then once I got into writing it and once um, the first draft was done, which took me about two months um, to do a, about a 300 page first draft, you know, I had a much better idea, but I, the, the, the book was so rough at that point. I mean, it was still like a year away from completion at that point. It, it need, I needed to go back and relook at those signposts and relook at the structure. So it's a little bit of an iterative process for me where I start off with this and then by, I, I know what I want to do. Then I do the, the first draft. But by the end of the first draft, I have such a better idea of who are the characters that I'm creating in this world and how can I go back and make those signposts and that structure um, more solid um, and start going through the rewriting process, which was like five or six drafts for me before it even went to my developmental editor. And then we did a big draft and then, you know, a, a, a copyrighted or copy editing draft also had some developmental ed, uh, edits in it. It was the same individual that I worked with John Ford on, on both of those. And so, you know, it, it was a process, but the, the structure, um, hangs in there and and i think that the reader can can kind of see that structure and it helped me as a writer to kind of stay on track to try to provide that fulfilling experience for the reader i think that's fascinating that seems like the the right way to do it i heard a quote i think it was from neil gaiman who said you know your first draft is you telling yourself the story 
And in your second draft, you try and make it sound like you knew what you're doing all along. (laughs) And I think part of that I found with with my stories, you know, the first draft in some cases is just a pure narrative. It's like, this is what happened. Step one happened, step two happened, step three Mm -hmm. happened, step four. And then when you look back at it, you're like, okay, if I'm going to tell this in the form of a story using Mm -hmm. whatever structure it is, well, it turns Mm -hmm. out that like the fourth stage of my narrative is actually what we Mm -hmm. need first stage of a proper story. And you have to... Mm -hmm move things around and cut stuff and maybe have um, timelines that filter back and forth. But it does seem like putting it into that story structure and having the awareness to do that is really one of the things that differentiates like an amateur writer from somebody who's going to be commercially successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I've been really, you know, blown away a little bit by some of the reception. So the, the book's coming out next week, but you know, both like Kirkus and publishers weekly, we're extremely positive on it. And, you know, as a first time writer who'd never done this before, you know, I was able to, you know, put this together using this system. And I, I, I you know, I was able to find a publisher and, and it's being distributed by Simon and Schuster. And, you know, the, the I don't know, it's probably like 20,000 right now on Amazon and rank and pre-order as an unknown author because people are also responding to the topic. So I've I, I've been fortunate that I've had a lot of interest because um, there's a central bank digital currency and, and different kind of financial topics that people have been putting me on national radio shows like Coast to Coast AM to hear about, you know, my finance angles and my finance expertise. But I'm telling them about the book. So I, what I'm really dying to know and I don't know yet is will readers like what I wrote, right? So that's going to come out in a few weeks. Well, the book comes out on Tuesday. And what I, you know, I can't wait to see what what the, the average reader starts thinking, because I know there's people been buying the book. And, you know, what are those Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Goodreads reviews going to start telling me, you know, um, and it might be, you know, if I'm honest about myself, when I look at it as a thriller aficionado, I look at it and I think this structure helped me create a really good, fulfilling story. And Roland, you mentioned this in the beginning, sometimes even if the writing isn't that great. And I think that as a first time writer, if I honestly try to judge myself, I did a job that when I look at it and I say, is this book as good as, you know, some well-known published thriller authors that I read? And I say, yes, it is. Is it a great thriller? Is it at the level of a master? No, it's not. And and, and I would be some sort of genius in Picasso, you know, if my first book that I put together w- was there. And but the structure, I think, helped me create the good narrative. And then this process of doing the first book has helped hone, hone those skills so that um, my next one, hopefully the writing gets a little better, but the process and the system's still there. And, you know, I can start evolving and growing as a writer, which is really what I, I want to do. Yeah, I always think people always refer to writing as a craft rather than an art. And it's like if Mm. you're a carpenter and you're making a table, then you Mm. can make the most beautiful table ever out of the most exquisite wood and put intricate carvings and different things. But at the end of the day, you've got to have table legs and a flat surface that people can put things on. It's like those are the essentials and you don't have a table unless you do those things. And I think it's the same with a story, a satisfying story even if they don't understand and can't contextualize what a satisfying story is, readers know, and you know, they come to the final page. And if you don't have all of the, 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 the turns that you expect in a story, it hits you kind of flat. And what you're talking about, I think is, is a really significant realization 
for an author to have. It's like you realize that you're you're constructing something just as much as you're being artistic about it. And yeah, the, the structure of that and meeting the expectations of your reader is often more important than the pure niceties of, of your writing. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I found for me in the editing process, oftentimes what I thought was this beautiful prose that I was pulling my poetry from, not the editor saying, you know, a little too much here, Mel, or, you know, it's distracting the reader or, you know, so, you know, the, my editor really helped me to uh, to take a look at some of the, the, the places where I was trying to put in the flourishes and kind of really create this magical moment. But it, if the whole novel's not that way, sometimes a paragraph could just stick out. But at the same time, uh, what I did find on more of a micro level was really helpful to me was really going through numerous edits more than editing the whole draft the the first paragraph or two and the last paragraph or two of every chapter and so i had a lot of chapters um uh, over 60 chapters in the book so it's it's a 330 page book with about 60 chapters so you know the chapters are 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 quick hits but i wanted each of them to still have a, a beginning a middle and an end and that beginning and end were just like a paragraph or two and in some cases it might only be you know a couple sentences but um, I think that the, the the chapter distribution and how that fit in, I never really thought about the, the chapter distribution in the beginning. And I did find myself in the second or third draft, which originally was something like a 40 chapter book, realizing that uh, sort of the chapter variation and stuff, a lot of times some of these chapters were better broken up and that's how it wound up getting to 60. That's interesting, even having the structure in the chapters themselves, because that's the mm-hmm. short the short chapters is a great thing. I can't remember who it was who said that, you know, chapters should be like potato chips. You can't stop at one. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, having that structure in the chapters makes them mm-hmm. satisfying in the same way that ultimately a story structure makes a whole book satisfying. Exactly. And and if the reader starts to lose interest after a few pages because you haven't hooked them yet with your amazing writing, but there's a chapter ending that lead them to want to read the next chapter um, to get that page turning feel, then you, you know, you, it's like the potato chip. Exactly. You, you, you nailed it. You, you, you're maintaining that reader focus for a 10 minute uh, first chapter or second chapter. But at the end of that, there's something that's left hanging. That's, that's an itch that the reader wants to scratch. And, and the next thing you know, they're 10 chapters into it. And now they really, you know, the story is starting to build and they want to know the ending of the whole story and you've got them, you know, hooked to, to get in there. And I think, you know, for me, the, the best writers out there, they, they do, they, they make you want to know what's going to happen. And, and very early on, you know, you might have your ideas of what's going to happen and stuff. And that, that's a little tricky in a thriller, right? Because it's like throwing aspersions at, you know, is that really a bad guy or is the bad guy a good guy? And, and all that stuff was, was super fun for me to just create these characters and, and, and all their different machinations and stuff. Well, tell me about the. We've talked about the, the structure of the first act, and you offered to talk us through the structure of a second act. Why don't you? Why don't you tell us what that structure looks like? Mm-hmm. So, in, in Bell's work, he talks about you know around twenty percent in the first act, and around twenty for the the third act. So the second act is the big, you know, the meat of the novel. Um, you know, sixty percent. You know, three times bigger than the other. other two acts individually. Um, I never worried about where stuff was. I did notice, like for me, my third act is probably more than 20%. 
for me and my, th- you know. So again, th- this was a way of taking a structure and then let the novel develop and the characters develop and being flexible on the structure and not saying, oh my gosh, my third act is like 30%. You know, I need to find a way to really shorten it. No, I was okay with that. That was the way my story worked. And and if that's the way that it worked, I, I wasn't going to rewrite uh, the whole thing to try to fix some formula. Like I need to literally on page, you know, 188, I need to move into the second doorway of no return. So the second act was, um, you know, he has four parts to it, even though it's, you know, the meat of the book and the longest part, there's the kick in the shins. And this is where, you know, the, the trouble that's been brewing and that the hero has reluctantly gone through that first doorway of no return, um, which in my book for Rory is, and I'm not going to give away the whole book, but, you know, because people want to read it, but I mean, I can't, if you guys, you know, like, but basically he's, he's going to, to Basel, Switzerland. So there's, there's actually like a physical movement in the story because the, the, the trouble brewing part gets him out of his comfort zone, his little cocoon in Puerto Rico and gets him to Chicago. And as the trouble starts brewing more and more, he, he, he gets to a point where he's needed in Basel, Switzerland, but he doesn't want to go. He, th- there's already been um, an attack on him that, that was foiled uh, to Russian uh, operatives had tried to take him out. And so he's, he's ready to uh, go back to Puerto Rico. He's gone back to Chicago to try to help his former colleague, but this is getting serious. And, and he's, you know, he, he's still kind of in a depression state because of the loss of his best friend who died in a tragic, you know, shooting on the streets of Chicago a year earlier. And, you know, the kick in the, so he, he makes that commitment. And then when the second act kind of, starts going for me in, in Basel, Switzerland, you know, it's a kick in the shins and it's, it's where the hero who you think can kind of be making progress and is going to, you know, get to the bottom of this, you know, something really bad happens to him or her. And, uh, you know, the situation, instead of starting to resolve or get better, just gets worse. And, and the, the next thing is that at a certain point, there's the mirror moment, which is the second uh, subcategory, and then we'll get to pet the dog and second do- doorway of no return. But the mirror moment is really like the key looking at himself in the book or looking at himself in the mirror and saying, you know, who am I? And am I, am I going to do this? And Bell notes that at some, in some stories, even though the mirror moment is kind of in the middle of his structure, it can happen um, much later. And he, references i believe casablanca and rick has his mirror moment you know near the end of the book where he kind of has a little bit of the the transformation where he's overcome that earlier argument against transformation and so for me rory has a mirror moment um probably a good two-thirds through the book where he's you know confronted with something and he's realizing if he's going to fight to do what he needs to do in the book um, you know, he's going to be putting his his safety at risk. He's going to be uh, perhaps putting someone he cares about by this point in the book, at, uh, safety at risk. And is he going to do that or is he just going to go back to, to Puerto Rico? And, and he manages to to move forward and then um, pet the dog is where, you know, it's a little bit like the care package. And that was, I think, the only signpost that I didn't di- I can't direct 
directly look at and say it's in the novel. And that was one where I thought about adding stuff, but it seemed forced. So pet the dog, like having the hero do something nice in a very particular way um, to kind of re-empathize with that person or, or so on and so forth. And I went back and I thought, oh, I can add this in or that in. And it just didn't fit. And so I decided I'm just not having an explicit pet the dog moment. And that's fine, too, you know. And and then the second doorway of return comes, uh, which is another final commitment that is coming right before the setup of what in phrase work would be the, you know, movement four, which for him is the hero confronts the villain who almost wins but is finally defeated. For me, that movement four, that's kind of the beginning of the third act in the three act structure. And that's where the second doorway of no return came in and Rory fully committed to confronting um, the villain. That's really interesting. I guess. Now, do you think the story structure is is loose enough that you can cut out? You can go from like 14 to nine to five plot points. Or do you think sometimes the way we write stories, maybe we'll cover several of those signposts in a single single scene? Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I, I think, you know, from looking at books that I've enjoyed, I notice a lot of these and I notice a lot of them, especially in movies, because it's so condensed. So you can see almost all 10 or 14 of them, you know, in just a, a two hour sitting watching a movie. And, you know, it's like so easy. It's like, oh, here's the disturbance. The person's, you know, sitting at home and then, you know, here's the care package. They do something nice. And I, th I think in a novel, in the ones that I have really liked, I've seen, like I said, like Casablanca, where some of these things come at the end. I think some of them can be omitted. Some of them aren't there. I think they come at different points. I think sometimes there might not be one for a long time. And then all of a sudden there's three or four in a row. And, you know, I'm, it's hard for me, me without like kind of walking through an entire other book or novel to, to give you examples. But I think if people think about it or think about this the next time they're watching a movie or, or reading their book, they'll see that a lot of these are in there, but they might be in there at different points and in different ways. Yeah, you know, I, I personally think that with the structure of a lot of these things, they're sort of more of a, uh, you know, like a, almost like a blueprint or a guide to sort of help direct the flow of a story. But I don't think that you have to religiously always keep to every single, you know, point. And um, I think that a lot of if you if you did like you said a lot of it would be forced and then it, it would just it would just, it wouldn't work anyways so i think you know it's more of the idea of structuring a story in this way in this sort of you know in three acts generally you want to follow this sort of flow otherwise you know it's not really gonna be a cohesive story or whatever it is right but if you miss a few i don't think that that's i don't think that's the end of yeah that. Exactly. And, 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 and me too. I, in fact, I'm trying not to say this is what you should do. I'm just saying this is what I did. And this is what I've also seen in other authors. But I, I, I wouldn't say that you need to do any of this if you can put together a good story that satisfies the reader and or if you want to do an experimental novel and just leave the reader thinking whatever your goal is. Um, this is just what worked for me. And it's what I've seen in a lot of successful fiction, you know, and that's that I can't say anything more about it. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that there's it's, so there's examples in history of. I mean, I looked it up, but uh, but there's <laughs> examples of of famous books that don't follow um, any kind of like known or popular structure, and you know. I, Ulysses was one, yeah. Patch 22 was another. So, I mean, there's, there's, they're out there, right? But obviously, you know, it's fewer and farther between. And I think, but I think a lot of people, a lot of authors don't study structure. And, but when they write the book, they just sort of automatically follow those structures. I think that's mm -hmm. sort of why it's not like some author came along and, and made up a structure out of the blue and just said everybody should use it. I think that they looked at stories and 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 popular popular books and said, you know, they're following this kind of structure and then they sort of codified it so that others could sort of follow that. But I think a lot of people just do it innately. Exactly. Exactly. It's like which came first, the chicken or the egg? Probably what came first is the story from right. sitting around the fire thousands of years ago and only later did people attempt to kind of codify it and put it in there, you know. Right. And I think it's interesting how the way you tell stories seems to have evolved as well. I mean, Joseph Campbell, like that's a that's a much older style of, uh, of telling stories. And then you had the TV model, which had the three act structure and then Save the Cat. I, I Save the Cat has ruined Hollywood movies for me. Like I watch <laughs> a Hollywood movie and I'm like, oh, look, this is Save the Cat. This is the, mm -hmm. you know, the um, new door opens and things like that, which is is interesting. But it's what makes mm -hmm. movies satisfying, you know uh it was it was frozen 2 i was watching with my daughter mm -hmm. and i remember being like i'm kind of into this movie just because i know what's going to happen next because it has to follow the the save the cat structure um mm. yeah it, it, you i i you have a different view after i went through this and and i also use another you know structural point called the prize which is you know kind of something that you know people are chasing after there's this encrypted thumb drive that has the key to the major problem. And, and so then like I, now I watch a, a book or gray man or some movie or something and, Oh, there's a prize, the prize, the prize, you know? So you start seeing these things all the time and it doesn't completely ruin it for me, but it's almost like a silent, you know, smile to myself or something when I see it, like, like th this is the device, but you know, the, the creator of that may have consciously used that device or they may have, as Craig was talking about, just innately put that in there to the story. Cause that, that's the way the story sounded compelling to them. And, and, and then, you know, I'm looking back at it and saying, Oh, they use, they use this or that, but it might've just been very natural. Yeah. And I think this is where as a, as a self-published author, especially maybe this is one of the areas in which having beta readers and feedback is very mm -hmm. important because you might write a book and just have an innate understanding of what story mm -hmm. structure is. But then when you give it to beta readers, they can say like, Hey, it would be more punchy if you placed more emphasis on mm -hmm. this particular plot point, which you're then like, mm -hmm. Oh, I see. That's mm -hmm. the part of the story structure that maybe I didn't emphasize and maybe I should do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, just like super quick, I, I don't know how much time we have left, but on, on the act three, right. Um, you know, the final signposts are, you know, mounting forces. So things are growing. The odds are getting more and more stacked against uh, the hero. And then lights out is this moment where you think the hero is going to lose. Um, yeah. And, and you believe like, oh, they, they've lost it. And, and, you know, there's no way out of this situation. And then um, the other one, which I think is really fun, 
uh, is the number 12, the Q factor. And he, he gets that title from Q in James Bond, where in the beginning of James Bond movies, you know, Q gives him something like a pen that can shoot out a rope that can climb him up a wall or something. And he carries it around and thinks it's a, you know, not really important. And then somehow when he, when the lights out have happened and he's in that inescapable situation, that thing that he had in the beginning. And, and for me, you know, I had a, a Q factor, uh, you know, in there that just worked perfectly. And then, you know, the final battle comes against the villain, the, the hero wins. And, and then at the end, it's the, the resolution and, and what Bell calls the transformation. And, and, you know, Rory has gone from this depressed, dejected guy who didn't really want to have anything to do with the world to um, someone who has overcome his, his own personal demons, as well as the outer villains and, you know, is in a better, a better place. And, and, you know, and, and yeah, it, it's, it's a happy, and I was watching a documentary with Sylvester Stallone, which, you know, people can, can look down on or however they want. People can look at me or who, so Stallone, anybody, they, any way they want, but Stallone's done a lot of great movies and a lot of great things in my opinion. And he wrote and Rocky, he, didn't he? he wrote Rocky. He, yes, he ran Rocky too. He wrote a, a lot of things and he, I think he did a bunch of junk too. But, you know, he he did a a bunch of really amazing stuff as well. And 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 he when he was doing, I think, Rambo, you know, at the end of the movie, it was all written for Rambo to die and kill himself at the end of the first movie. And he's just like, no, he's like, not only do I not want the reader to have that, but like there's going to be Vietnam vets watching this. And I don't want them to think like, oh, that's what that's that's what's going to happen to me because I went through these horrible combat experiences. And at the end of the day, I'm all messed up in the head. So I might as well be like Rambo and blow my brains out. He's like, I don't want that message going out to the world. And I also don't want the reader or the watcher to be, you know, left with that darkness. And, and, you know, he, he continued it. And so, yeah, at the end of the movie, there, there's a bit of a, a, at the end of Quaz, there's a bit of a happy ending, but there's also that, you know, hanging, uh, element of 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 danger that was not completely eliminated that i i leave in there in case you know there there's a royal connor thriller you know book two and so a little minor setup for 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 that next novel and that could get into people who set out to write series which is a whole you know different conversation but i was wanting this to be possibly the first of a series so i i had something like that in mind yeah, I mean, I was going to say the pessimistic view of, of uh, Stallone's uh, reluctance to kill off Rambo might have been, hey, uh, we might want to do another one or another mm-hmm. five or six of them. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it'd be nice to believe that it's more of the altruistic mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, yeah, I, 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 I think that that's, that's a really, you know, important sort of thing to keep in mind because if how you end the book is gonna affect the readers and a lot of times you know they if you're writing a thriller you're writing like something that's sort of like a fun action thing they're not really looking for tears at the end necessarily and and the, and the hero to be killed uh mm-hmm. it might it might not really fit sort of that overall vibe that you have throughout the book sometimes when i watch a show and and at the end the person dies or it's just a really unsatisfying ending that sort of almost taints the whole thing for me yeah, and there can be sad endings that work really well. It just yeah. in in this That's case it didn't. Yeah. yeah, in this case it didn't for me. And um, 
I think there's also, you know, a little bit of taking, you know, I would never take my writing too seriously, but you know, if, if, if there's a little bit of a moral component in a story, I think it's, it's worthwhile for the writer to reflect on what do they want that story to communicate. And, and sometimes, you know, you have to kind of question or think about that. I think, you know, writers provide an extremely, you know, valuable service to humanity. And, you know, there's like, you know, a lot of times that, you know, things we might hear on the news or things are, are lies, but our stories kind of tell the truth. And, and, and if you're trying to communicate something that, you know, is a little bit on a little bit of a deeper level, and, and I never had any intention to do literary or win, win fancy awards with this, but, uh, you know, I did want it to 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 kind of not have the the evil corrupt people just get away with everything and and do everything and that's that's the way the world works because i think even though the world has a lot of corrupt people that get away with a lot of stuff at the end there's also a lot of positive in the world and i wanted to try to have some of that too i mean that's that's the gift that we have as writers isn't it it's like Mm -hmm. we can at least make the real world things have a happy ending and in some ways (laughs) that's the only thing that, that you know keeps you getting out of bed in the morning yeah and at the end of the day, every major dictator, every major tyrant in the history of humanity has fallen. And they might have had their time when they were in control and they were running things. But at the end of the day, the people keep fighting back and, and we're still here and we're we're alive and, and kicking and living our lives. And so uh, anybody who's tried to control the world ultimately has failed. Let's hope they never do succeed. Absolutely. Do you know, that reminds me of a final quote, maybe to finish things up, which is that uh, the point of fairy tales isn't to... Isn't to teach us that um, that dragons exist. It's to teach us that they can be killed. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That, that sums it up perfectly. Yeah. So, great. Um, before we wrap things up, do you have any final questions for Mel? Uh, no, I think that this has been a really good discussion about you know structure in general, but but with in the idea of the three act structure and sort of I like how he used uh, you know the examples from his book to to show how he hit those signposts and posts because I think a lot of times when you read a structure book or you try to or an article about the structure, it's sometimes hard to sort of shoehorn in a story and and if you haven't really done it before to figure out what what he's talking about. And and so it often works well when you have examples to say, you know, in this part, I did you know, I did did this. Um, so I think that was really useful. And I think in general as a overall discussion about structure, this is really uh, interesting as well. So thanks for coming on. No, so, thank you. Uh, go ahead. Ron. I was going to say, Mel, where can people find out more about your thrillers and more about you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a website, melmadison.com. I spell with two T's instead of a D, Madison, M-A-T-T-I-S-O-N. Um, or if you you Google or search Quaz, Q-U-O-Z, a financial thriller, um, add in a financial thriller. Otherwise, a bunch of Quaz, uh, it's an old word, I guess. But um, quasi financial thriller, you know, you can find, you know, it's for sale everywhere. And um, it's uh, learn more about me at melmadison.com. Brilliant. Well, we'll pop a link to, to that down below in the description. And while you're down there, anyone listening or watching this, make sure you leave Mel a comment and let uh, let him know how much you've appreciated what he shared with us today. And since you're down there, you could also hit that subscribe button and hit that bell notification if you haven't already. And give us a like, because we'll be back next week with another episode of Fully Booked. So thank you very much, Mel. And uh, thank you very much, everyone who's tuned in and listening.